The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. I want to talk a little bit about lenses tonight, that whether you have glasses or not, there are ways, there are, there are things in our lives that, that shape how we see the world. Uh, there are things that shape how we see others. And of course, there are things that shape how we see ourselves and indeed how we see God. They are usually rooted in things that are key to our identity. For most of the people in this room, my guess is that your life as a student is one of the lenses that you kind of see everything through. Uh, maybe it is through your family of origin. Maybe it is you see, you see the world and yourself through lenses of competition. There's other things that can really shape our lenses. I know that... that um, I'm always fascinated when I talk to people who are vegans, that their veganness often shapes a lot of how they see the world in things that I find both compelling, very challenging, and sometimes a bit bizarre as an omnivore. Okay, but the, my, my point is there are a lot of things that can shape how we see and how we interpret, how we experience the world that are rooted in and come out of our identity. Well, what we get to tonight is we continue a series through 2 Corinthians is how our identity can be changed and how that changes both the lenses through which we see and understand and interpret the world, others, and ourselves, and in fact, actually changes the heart and mind behind the eyes looking through them. The short word for this is transformation. What we're going to see uh, as we continue tonight and really throughout the balance of the quarter as we look at this book of 2 Corinthians is that God is not going to leave you just as you are. That God is a God of transformation. God is a God that is going to change you. It's just going to be the way that it is if you are going to have a relationship with Jesus, if you are going to follow Jesus. That reality of being changed, of being transformed, for you, if you're listening and taking this seriously, should be both really exciting and maybe a little bit terrifying at the same time. Because of that reality, let me pray as we get started. God, we... Uh, we come tonight because we want to know you more. And so we ask that your spirit would help us do just that, that we would know you more, that we might be open to the work that you want to do in our hearts and our minds, and not just in us, but in the entire world around us. Um, this, is, this, is not just, this transformation is not just for us. We know that you have big plans uh, for redeeming us and all of creation. Help us out as we come to your word tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, before I read what uh, we're going to cover tonight, let's do a quick recap. Here we are. It's, it's midterms. You could, do a, you could uh, use a little bit of, rev of a review, right? That what I want to emphasize here in this first few weeks are some particular characteristics of God 
that we've looked at here in our, in our look at the first four chapters of 2 Corinthians, okay? Uh, to, to put uh, some words to that, the first week that we, we talked about the God of comfort, the God that desires to comfort us. The week after that, we saw this God of, of acceptance, a God that says yes to us. The, and then two weeks ago, we heard about God as one who is eager to forgive and in fact is strong enough to forgive and in, who in fact does forgive. And then last week, Janie talked about God's strength in our weakness, that we are, are like these broken vessels, these jars of clay that have, that have cracks, but it is the gospel, the message that shines through and in fact flows out of those cracks. That's where we've been so, so far. And what, again, what do I want you to see about this? Too often, we are tempted to reduce the Bible to this thing that we open it up and we go, okay, God, tell me, how to, tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do today and how to, how to live my life. Okay, sometimes the Bible does that and praise God when it happens. But I'm here to tell you that one of the, the primary uh, purposes of the Bible is not to tell us what to do in class today, but to inform us about the personality and the character of God. It's the story of God, which includes our story, how our story comes together with the story of God. And that is another plug for the In Bible Challenge so that you can know that too, okay? So um, comfort, acceptance, forgiveness, healing, and strength. It's also my chance to say, if you missed any of those talks, we have them loaded up on our website uh, that you can go and visit and, and check any of those things out. We also have some apps. I've been told they haven't been working well. Oh, yes, of course, there's an app for that. This is the in. Um, and we're going to get those fixed so that you can get caught up on, on uh, what we've been doing here at the end. Okay, ready? Second Corinthians 5. We're going to start at the 11th verse Here's what it says. Um, after it talks about essentially that God is large and in charge, here's what it says. Since then, we know that what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you the opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what, um, rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. Okay, now, now listen up here. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again for them. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Okay, now here it comes. Ready? This is a really important line. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Amen. Okay. That first, that last verse will frame the rest of what we're going to talk about tonight. The old has gone. The new has come. You are a new 
creation. Okay, now that is good news. That's good news. Because of the things that we've heard earlier this quarter. Now, it would be okay if there are some of you that are sitting here going, why, why would I need to be made new? What, does God have a problem with me? Does God hate me? Did, and it, it, what's wrong with me? Hey, you were created good. And in fact, Genesis 1, if you were reading the Bible challenge, you would know, says that you were created very good, okay? You're created very good. What this, one of the ways that you can understand what it means to be a new creation, and some of you that are studying business and, and leadership may have, have heard something uh, along the lines in, in terms of management like this, is that God's intention in making you new is, is not to um, somehow um, wipe you away. Perhaps it's helpful, helpful for you to think about it like this, that being made new is the process of you becoming more of exactly who God intends you to be, okay? It's becoming the most real, the most authentic you. That's what it means to be made new. Now, before we go back and look at a couple of verses that, uh, as I uh, spoke with our in-speaking team, kind of jumped out at us, I want to remind you about the culture of, of Corinth that based on its location here in the first century, it was at this point in the Mediterranean that was really a bit of a crossroads, that anything that was coming uh, from Rome in the west and moving east kind of had to go through Corinth. And anything that started in the east, say, around uh, Jerusalem and and parts that way that were headed to Rome, everything kind of passed through Corinth. So it was a place where, where if there was any trend, so to speak, in the first century, the, the citizens of Corinth were well aware of it. And thus there was this, this emphasis on, on what is the most sexy thing of the day? What is the thing that is going to make my life best? What's the thing that's gonna help me get on top? Okay, does that sound a little bit familiar uh, to the culture that we live in? So there are, I think it's very, very fair that we would make similarities between the conditions of first century Corinth as a city of ideas, a city of passage, and where we find ourselves here in Seattle in the 21st century. Okay, so the first three verses that we captured very much capture the point that Janie made last week, that people are broken vessels, and that though though we might not be uh, the most skilled of orators or the most skilled of vessels, that the work of Christ, the, the, the healing, redeeming, powerful work shines through us. Um, and what that is, is the message of the gospel. Um, the message that uh, you um, have been damaged, but you are redeemed. You are repaired, you are saved. Then we get to verse 14, and it says this, Christ's love compels us. Now, Instead of it being a trend in first century Corinth, instead of it being just ambition that would compel us, Paul is saying it is now love that compels us. He's beginning to note the change that would be happening in those who follow Jesus. Um, Christ's love compels us. And so he's beginning to subordinate the idea that it would be, say, personal ambition, the desire to be famous, 
the desire to be powerful that would compel us. No, instead it is something a lot more subtle. It's Christ's love that compels us. On that same train of thought, we get to verse 16. It says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Now, what's a worldly point of view? Uh, Let me see if I can explain this. Um, When we make judgments about ourselves based purely on what we can see here and now, judgments that may sound a little bit like this, I'm not smart enough, I bombed that last midterm. I'm not attractive enough. I've gained too much weight. A worldly point of view I want to offer is a point of view that is essentially limited to judgments made using only data that can be seen in any given moment. That's a worldly point of view. You have a very limited set of data that is only seen in this one moment. Got to tell this story. Um, because basically what Paul is, is saying here is, is that um, it might not, um, a worldly point of view um, is only going to base things based on what is seen. Uh, several years ago, I was at a conference in the South um, during football season. I'm a big football fan, and those, those football fans in the Southeastern Conference, the SEC, they're a, they're a whole different animal. And I'm at a Christian conference. Okay, and of course, it, you know, at some point the conversation goes to football and, you know, these guys were, I forget which, which school they were from, but they're talking about um, their team and, and how apparently the kicker of their team is a Christian. But then they back up and they say, really, he's a Christian? Well, it sure doesn't help him out much on the football field, you know. That right there is a worldly point of view. The point of view that if there's going to be anything that is worth it, it better have some sort of value to me right now. That's a worldly point of view. And what Paul is saying is we, want to, uh, we don't want to regard things merely from a worldly point of view. So that gets us back to verse 17. What does it mean to be a new creation? It means this, that the death and resurrection, that is the restored life of Christ. Okay, here we go is one of the most important events in the lives of the Corinthians. And it's one of the most important events in your life. Is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ one of the most important things that happens in your life? Why would it be important? Because if Jesus is raised again, and the point that Paul is making throughout 2 Corinthians is whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. The cross of Christ is important to you and makes you a new creation because it raises you into a new life. That's why I want to remind you that the cross of Jesus is one of the most important things that has happened in your life. And it makes you new. It, may, it, it begins to raise you into exactly who it is that God has in mind for you to be. It changes you. Now, there's plenty of people in this room that I'm aware that word change can be a word that can be pretty scary. 
But as we are transformed, Jesus is not content to just leave us the way we are. In the job that I do, I get to do a lot of, a lot of weddings. And I count it a great privilege to get to be with couples up in front on the big day as the two become one. And in that process, I often get to meet with these couples and do a little bit of premarital counseling. And, and this hasn't happened a lot, but it, it has happened where a couple will end up back in my office Um, several months after they got married and they're struggling. And one of them looks at the other and inevitably communicates something like this. That isn't the person I married. And I'm sitting across listening and the thing going through my head as I continue to hear them talk is actually the problem is that person is exactly who you married. They haven't changed. And that's what's frustrating. As a new creation, this promise of a new creation of transformation, it changes us. How? I want to offer three things as we wrap up tonight. First, as a new creation, you reserve judgment. In short, it, as a new creation, it changes the way that we evaluate things. Okay, we remember what Paul says, that we no longer judge by worldly Standards, And so we change the way we evaluate. Um, you know where this starts for me? This starts in the way that I judge myself. Uh, the, the inner dialogue that I often have tends to be pretty brutal in how I understand my performance as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor. And that dialogue gets really negative really fast that the inner voice of judgment that I place upon myself can sometimes be overwhelming. And I only share that not to get pity from anyone, but because I know I'm not the only one in that boat. But the reality is that one of the things that happened when Jesus died on the cross is that he took away your right to judge yourself. You don't get that right anymore. You don't get to judge yourself. That job's been taken. And it's a good thing because I have a hunch that God's actually more gracious to you than you are. It's the way I've often felt as I've continued to grow in my faith. And I am not done growing. I sure hope I'm not done being transformed. It also, it also changes the way that we evaluate even doing things like this, like gathering in a church service, being critics of going, did that make me feel something? And hey, when we feel something, it's great, but we can't reduce success in our faith to if it produced the feeling that we wanted it to make us feel. There are promises in scripture that are much, much bigger than that. We can't turn ourselves into being merely Christian consumers. You know, um, I was so encouraged. Last spring, there was a group of student leaders. They were then juniors, they're this year's seniors. We went on a, a 24-hour retreat and they really set the vision for what we are, are walking into right now. Through studying scripture, they said, you know what? We recognize our need uh, for ourselves and others to be encouraged. And so our desire is that university ministries would be a culture of encouragement. And then their next two points I thought were profound. They said, before, instead of of prioritizing our being fed, we want to feed instead of being fed. And then thirdly, they said, uh, we want to stay committed. Even when we don't feel like showing up to lead, to participate in what we're doing, we're going to do it anyway. It changes the way that we think and we evaluate ourselves 
in the things around us. The second thing, a new creation sees others differently. Remember that the text said, it is love that compels us. This Sunday, I was talking to this wonderful old couple, older couple, no, they're, they're old. Let's just say it, they're old. And they have been a couple that over the years has hosted many of our interns and, and missionaries that have been sent in this church. When these missionaries are home, they need a place to stay. Our interns, we, we uh, have host families for them. And they, um, they were telling, telling me about how basically every person that stays with them is, they just go, oh, they're the best. They're the best. Well, as they were doing that, their 19-year-old grandson says, you say that about everyone that stays with you. And he says, well, is it because they're really that great? Or is it because that's the way that you choose to see them? It's because of the lenses you use. A new creation is one who sees the new creation in other people, who looks for that. Um, a pastor, an author, and a friend of ours that has spoken at our winter retreat, a guy named Greg Boyd, uh, often says that when he meets somebody new, one of the first things that goes through his head is, is he walks up to that person knowing the best thing about them, that they are a, a loved and redeemed child of the king. It's his way of having lenses that know that this person is a new creation. It's the way that he lives into his being a new Creation. What does it look like for you to see the world through lenses of grace? To see the world through lenses of love. If that happens, what changes for you tomorrow morning when you go to class? It changes our lenses. Finally, a new creation gives their lives away. Verse 15, he died for all that all who live should no longer live for themselves should no longer live for themselves. We are, as a new creation, no longer living for just our own advancement. As a new creation, we live for the advancement of others. And as I work with college students, there can often be this sense of a delay in living for others. Oh, when I graduate and when I have a job, when I make more money, then I'll volunteer. But only after I get married and raise the kids and have some stuff, then I'll write big checks to nonprofits. Um, There can be this sense of when the conditions are right and especially when I have time, then I will give my life away as a new creation. Um. I came across an article recently that listed 15 things that this author wanted people in their 20s to start doing uh, before they turned 30. And this author noted things like getting up early, making margin in life, creating a pattern of giving money, and battling spiritual complacency. But the one that he listed that got my attention most was this. He said, I want people in their 20s before they're 30 to start doing this. Being content with the life you have. And then in parentheses, he says, while still trying to accomplish your dreams. 
being content with the life you have while still trying to accomplish your dreams. Here's what I want you to do. Okay, uh, this is, we, we, don't, we don't do this a whole bunch at the end, but I want uh, go with me here for a second. I want to invite you into a bit of an imaginative exercise as we close here, okay? Close your eyes. And I want to fast forward 30 years. Picture yourself in 30 years. What do you see? Okay, now get past how you look. Get past what you've accomplished. Get past what you've acquired. What's the best thing about you? How are you being made new? What do you hope the people in your life are saying behind your back? How are you giving your life away? Friends, what it means to be a new creation is that you don't have to wait 30 years to live into that vision. That's your identity right now. You can do those things right now. You are a new creation. You don't have to wait three decades to give your life away. My encouragement to you is those things that you picture the person you want to be, to start living into that today is you are fueled by the love of God that has rescued you, that has forgiven you, and that indeed compels you. Being a new creation means that you join your life to the resurrected life of Jesus Christ that offers something bigger than any current trend can. Let us be transformed. Let us be changed by Christ that we might become exactly who it is that God has it in mind for us to be, that our lenses might be accurate in how we see ourselves, how we see those around us, how we see the world, and indeed how we see the love of Jesus Christ. You are a new creation. Let's pray. Uh, God, help us, redeem us, rescue us, and continue to be at work in us. Lord, let these visions that we have for ourselves and for giving our lives away not be mere abstractions, but may they be something that we might live into today. God, would you compel us by your love to live into exactly who it, who it is that you have in mind for us to be even today, even tonight, even as we go to school tomorrow. God, help us out as we go from here. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.